It is not the intention of this book to pretend to the level of a magical grimoire, nor to infer that East Anglia is the home of the devil himself. But as an isolated area where magical practice has not been and is still not uncommon, then the devil's plantation lets itself well to describing the area and some of its ways. I do, however, intend this book to be an evocation of the spirit of the land of East Anglia, and to that end, it is indeed a magical book. Nigel Pearson. So this is a uh, incredible book. Now the first, um, very good, uh, and it's it's uh, such an incredible work. I mean, you know, of research and etc. And it's it's really very well done. Uh, Troy Books, as we know, uh, is an excellent uh, publisher. Um, they have really, really taken care of the books, and and it, we can see that they uh, have as much passion as the reader for the books. So um, the quality of this book is incredible. Um, I'm very, very impressed and pleased when I when I got my. Um, it's it's fantastic. The quality, as you say, is marvelous. It is, yes. And um, and also the quality of your writing. It's uh, and I, I really do like uh, because it's very it's very personal. At some points, um, you know, you talk about yourself. Um, I have experience of this, or I have you know went through, or I I talked with you know. So it's mm-hmm. it's very much uh, almost like a, a you know there are some bits that are really very personal, which is really really interesting um, because it. it being an East Anglian myself, um, th- this is my land. This is where I was born. This is my place. Right. So I am intimately connected with what I'm writing about as I've lived here all my life. So as well as the research I put in um, historical and with contemporary practitioners, um, obviously and inevitably, I have had experiences and knowledge and practice in this area myself. So it seemed daft not to put it in when it was first hand. <laughs> of course, of course. Um, to- <laughs> yes. So well, let's begin with the title of the book. Um, sure. What, uh, what does it, uh, uh, why did you choose this title, The Devil's Plantation? Um, it's the name of uh, an historical uh, tome that mm-hmm. was said to belong to um, a Cambridgeshire witch known as Daddy Witch, uh, who lived in the 19th century mm-hmm. in a place called Horseheath. Um, and it was a book of her own um, spells, magic, incantations, whatever, that um, she'd had either passed down to her or mm-hmm. she'd acquired in some way. Um, so that's a, a known tome. Um, it also has the meaning of a plot of land that is set aside from the normal usage um, of farming or everyday life that is dedicated specifically to um, the land spirits, uh, the old gods, mm-hmm. set aside as something otherworldly. Um, so when Jane and Gemma asked me to write the book, um, that title just immediately popped into my head with both of those meanings attached. And as East Anglia is a bit of a promontory um, stuck out by itself on the edge of the country, 
it sort of applied in both senses in that it was separated, um, cut off, uh, somewhat isolated, but also a place where magic has been practiced for a long time and still continues to be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, this book is completely the original, I mean. It's completely um, lost. As far as we know, yeah. Nobody knows where it is, or if they do, they're not saying. Of course. <laughs> of course. Um, it's not available, put it that way. Yes. Let's just say that it's out of print. Um, it's out of print. Right. <laughs> so, yes. Um, you, uh, this book is very, it's, it's very interesting because it gets, um, the whole um, setup of the book is, it's incredibly uh, interesting. The, you have it uh, divided by chapters, of course, and then uh, chapter one is the living landscape, chapter two, mermaids, giants, and spectral hounds, chapter three, uh, characters of the craft, and you go, you know, on and on and on about each of the, um, some of the aspects, um, the witch's way, the green ways, the folk ways, um, and all of this is uh, very, very interesting. But um, you begin in the, in the first chapter, of course, you begin by talking about the land. And we just talked about the land. You just connected the title of this book with uh, that specific plot of land. Um, and you say in the book that it is essentially the quality of the energy in the land uh, itself that determines the nature of the magic of the place. What is the spearmint or virtue, and how can one go about to use it? Um, the spearmint and the virtue are... They're present in all parts of the land, but those are the terms that are specifically used um, in East Anglia. Um, it is the energy of the land where you are. So there will be energy in, in Scotland, in Cornwall, in Wales, in the Midlands, wherever. Um, right. But we, in East Anglia, we call it virtue or spearmint. Um, virtue is probably more the term that we would use for the energy that we would use in magical workings. Spearmint is more probably the, the essence of the energy itself. Subtle differences, but they're there. In East Anglia, um, having a vast coastline, it is not surprised that we would find a lot of magical tradition concerning mermaids and 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 all of the kin. Um, what is really in its East, East Anglia? What is the the uh, the definition of of a mermaid? Is it different from you know they're they're basically uh, water beings. But is, yeah. is there any particular uh, thing about uh, the ones in East Anglia? How are they find? Um, they, they're different from other parts in the country in that we tend to see them as creatures of inland waterways rather than on the coast. Um, there are a few stories of beings that were um, captured or seen um, on the coast but most of the stories, most of the folklore and the magical uh, references um, occur around beings that belong to um, inland uh, waterways, rivers, uh, lakes and ponds. Um, and they're usually not terribly nice creatures, um, not overly friendly towards humans. Um, they would 
tend to grab you and drag you down. Um, children were warned to stay away from certain stretches of water um, in case they were, you know, abducted basically and taken down to watery graves. So within East Anglia, the difference is that it's it's more freshwater um, inhabitants rather than seawater inhabitants. Very good. Um, also, is East Anglia? It's known as as uh, as the uh, witch country. Mm -hmm. uh, because of the many magical practitioners uh, that are recorded uh, throughout history um, from many, you know, uh, many centuries. Um, how would you describe these magical folks or practitioners? Cantankerous. <laughs> um, very definitely a breed apart. Um, they were very definite individuals. Um, not afraid generally to um, show their abilities and craft um, and usually quite powerful as they were not very often touched by the church. Um, yes, we had vast witch persecutions, but the stories of the individual characters that I mentioned in the book and the ones that we have that are named mm -hmm. uh, weren't usually... Um, persecuted, um, probably because people were scared of the knowledge and the power that they actually had. They were very, very definitely individuals with character. Right. Um, how is the how was the knowledge uh, handed down? Um, were Were there any books? I mean, we know we talked about one that it's out of print, um, but were there <laughs> any books or anything that how how was it passed it down? Um, books, yes and no. Um, there were, as we said, the, the, the Devil's Plantation. Uh, there was also another one that was um, called The Secret Granary, um, which again was a collection of magic and lore that was um, passed down or around. Um, most people tended to collect their own lore and um, write down their own spells, whatever, recipes. Because uh, a lot of them tended to be recipes rather than spells. Right, right. Um, how things were passed down. Um, a lot of witches or craft practitioners uh, would have been um, self-initiated. Um, they would have an encounter, um, either voluntary or involuntary, with um, the character known as the devil, generally. Um, and um, it would be... Um, a spontaneous thing, um, not taught by anybody else. Uh, he would, uh, you know, the, the magical person known as the devil, would would pass the knowledge on direct from the other world, so to speak. Mm. Uh, that's not to say that there were not lineages um, of initiation, because there were. Um, people did take on apprentices right. um, and teach. But um, it, it was both sides. It was um, people learning by themselves and mm -hmm. taught within an established tradition. But having said established tradition, um, it was very individual. Again, um, there is not really any such thing as a commonly held body of law. Pretty much um, everybody did their own thing, but within a common flavor of the area. Before the Reformation, there was uh, really no problem with um, 
folk magic or not you know at least not big problems with folk magic um was there any dual faith practices uh yeah um well it was very much um people would tend to do stuff that um, they had always done um not necessarily knowing where it came from because it had been handed down for such a long time right um there's one example that i I think you may be thinking. Yeah, uh, the one about the the lady that had uh, problems with conception, and she would buy a a large white ball. Right, yeah, it'd be large large white ball, um, which would be processed through the town uh, streets um, up to the the cathedral gates, where the bull would be dispatched with ceremony, and you would have singing of psalms and chants and choirs. Um, prayers for the successful conception of the lady. Um, and, you know, all that seemed to be perfectly acceptable within a Christian setting. Um, but plainly, that was a, a throwback or a hangover from um, yeah. something that was not Christian. Um, other instances um, include the use of rosary beads, um, which were noted by um, Protestant um, recorders post-Reformation, in that local folk practitioners um, would use Catholic rosary beads, um, saying our various Ave Marias or charms or chants um, for healing purposes and other spell purposes um, within the folk magic um, canon. So the practitioners themselves didn't really draw a line between, oh, this is Christianity, this isn't Christianity, they used whatever was to hand, wherever that came right. from, however old that was. Um, and that very much, you know, happens still today. I, I, I mean, there's a whole lot of uh, practices and practitioners that still today, um, there's a dual faith or, um, I wouldn't even call it a dual faith. Sometimes, you know, it is Christian-based um, um, witchcraft. I mean, it is based on old practices but they use all yeah. of the psalms and all of those things and um you know so still today um sure. why is mother yeah. lakeland trial yeah. interesting ah right well apart from the fact that she um lived in my hometown of ipswich <laughs> so she's quite close to my heart um <laughs> um it was one of the few occasions where uh post-reformation um a witch was actually burnt um, for her practices, because that involved um, killing um, her husband, which was considered uh, petty treason. And petty treason carried the, uh, the death penalty of burning uh, rather than hanging, um, because it was considered a major crime. A woman did right. not kill her husband. It was not done. Right. Um, does this... Uh, does her... Um trial gives uh um any anything about i mean who who this woman was clearly uh, a witch uh, or someone that would practice you know the uh, mm. some of the things is there anything in this trial that um tells us a little bit more about her practices um she was uh considered to be um it was a strange case in that she was considered a, a devout christian um, she was supposed to be, as they said at the time in the transcript, a, a professor of religion, 
um, not a professor as we would know from a university, but she professed her religion quite vehemently, um, a, a practicing Christian, uh, but also at the same time, and for a period of 20 years, she, she confesses um, that the devil had come to her, um, and it appears like it was sort of a half-waking, half-dreaming half state, um, she had a visitation by this um, being um, who chose to call itself the devil, or she called it the devil, um, that offered her these abilities, this knowledge. Um, and uh, if, if she would uh, renounce the Christian faith, which she refused to do, um, and uh, this being then said, right, okay, if you follow me anyway, you can still have these abilities. So that that was that was quite strange. <laughs> so she carried on being a, she carried on being a Christian and working with the devil to all, to all intents and purposes. Truly dual faith. Um, so yeah. <laughs> so now, um, uh, can you tell us a little bit about um, Mother uh, uh, Stilselton um, and her use of of the eye? I know that this is it's it's very interesting this story, but uh, I, I like it particularly because um, my original country uh, of uh, birth is Portugal, and there is a right. huge, uh, as in Italy, as in any Mediterranean uh, country, huge um, evil eyes, very very big, uh, and yeah. uh, babies still today are taken into the these wise women to. Uh, Bless them with rosemary and olive oil and all of that, and um, and I find I found this this particular story very very interesting. Um, and uh, can can you tell us a little bit more about her and and how she used the eye? She comes in with with a lot of similar things like that, um, in that they they would have um, certain predictive powers um, that were sort of not exactly putting the evil eye on somebody, but they, they would have foreknowledge of a situation um, and then prevent anybody saying anything about it after the, the, um, the situation come about. Um, and and this, this is quite common. It goes, goes um, over quite a few of the characters that I described mm -hmm. that. There is another one that uh, is very interesting because it's just because um, they're all very interesting, but <laughs> this one is very <laughs> interesting because it, it, it actually involves the former uh, Prince of Wales. And um, in 1863, he had to make a decision. There's a whole lot of people, um, a, a whole lot of uh, uh, cunning folk that were actually living in his uh, premises uh, when he took over. And he ordered uh, all of them to be... Um, you know, to be um, removed. <laughs> removed. <laughs> That's right. And <laughs> is, is except word, yes. one, right? Yeah. And uh, do you remember who, uh, who that was? Um, it, it was. It's it's very interesting because later on he he uh, becomes sick, very sick. And, That's right. Uh, yeah. And uh, um, what was it? It was a wine that she gave him, wasn't it? Because the princess were they it's, were desperate, basically at that point, right? Pretty much, she she was he, um she sorry um he was in quite a bad way, and it was actually um his his wife, um Princess Alexandra, right, who um uh, sent for her sister-in-law, uh, who was the Duchess Olga of Russia, 
um, both um, countries having very strong folk magical traditions. So the, um, the, the two princesses, having conferred over this, um, applied um, to the local footman, basically, to um, go down to the village where the, the, the last remaining um, wise woman lived and um, see what she could do about the situation. And um, she provided the, uh, the footman with um, bottles of homemade wine. Yes. Um, it doesn't say what type of wine it was, but obviously she had her own herbal mixtures and, and recipes to use it. And um, these proved miraculous. And uh, they, they had a supply going on for, for quite some time. Um, she, she said, uh, what was it? The time was uh, within whatever it uh, was it three months no one three weeks maybe that he would be sitting if the yeah, undertaker right. what was it if the undertaker didn't take him already he that's would right. be I'd sitting be... in his bed f for about what three weeks i think yeah um if he's if he's not gone to the undertaker within three days oh um, three days yes <laughs> he'll be fine yes. four days later the groom brought the old lady some gold he and was sitting up in bed and doing fine. <laughs> so that's, and was fine for a while after that, yeah. Good for her. Um, that's, you know, something. And, and that connection is, is, um, is rumoured to, to carry on to this day. Um, the, the Sandringham State in Norfolk, which is where this took place, um, there are still rumours of, of connections with, uh, with the royal family even now. Right, right. The other thing that I find it very interesting here in this particular part of the book um, is, and you're talking about witches and, you know, and or cunning folk or, mm. um, that were famous or that actually, not famous, but they did had, um, they were extraordinary in some, mm. in some um, way. And you do not go only to this particular period. You know, people sometimes just go into these very, very old, you know, 19th century, 18th century, um, mm. even before that. But you go and you come into um, the modern witchcraft and modern sure. times. And you talk about a little bit about Monica, Monica English mm -hmm. and how she came in contact with uh, Bricket Wood Coven. Um, yeah. So, and this is very interesting because this was actually told by Lois Bourne uh, in her That's book, right. Dancing with Witches. Um, and uh, and it's, it's a very interesting story because it's the story of, um, of a spy, isn't it? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, really, basically. Uh, Monica English um, was um, reputed to be uh, or Lois Bourne later found out that um, she was a member of a coven in uh, the north of Norfolk with a very different background, mm -hmm. um, ethos and practice. Right. And she had basically been sent to the, the Bricket Wood Coven, which was one of um, Gerald Gardner's uh, original covens, to, to find out what these, these new young pretenders were up to. Um, and, and basically report back and, you know, and see what was going on. Right. They, they remember her being quite remarkable uh, yeah. on her dance and uh, the calling chants. They, they said mm. that uh, 
um, Lois Lois actually uh, Lois actually uh, uh, describe that when she uh, uh, did the calls while she was dancing, that owls will come and sit on the on the uh, mm-hmm. roof of the of the cottage that they were doing you know the mm-hmm. ceremony in. And um, they responded to her, and uh, it was quite remarkable. Uh, but uh, do we know anything else about this Monica Ill English? I mean, you go into this the the story of this uh, group that she probably uh, were part of. Um, mm-hmm. Do we do we have any more information about uh, if the the group is still continuing? We don't. We have no clue. We probably. We we. Um... <laughs> There's no direct information. Um, the the information from Lois Bourne is, is the last that we have that is in the public domain. But um, Mike Howard, who gave me permission to quote from his book Children of Cain before he died, um, s- sort of hinted that he was still in touch or he knew of people in that area um, and strongly suggested that uh, Monica English's coven was still in existence um, in some form or another, and was still continuing, but um, I have no further information on that than right. than that. Right, right. Um, and and this coven apparently uh, was uh, in existence for uh, more than two hundred years, which is quite a lot. Um, apparently so. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yes. So let let's shift a little bit here the the conversation to um places of liminality um and and borders or lines um mm. there there are very special places and they always were i mean and you know you have de- deities that are actually clear, um, clearly connected with us and um you know places where two worlds can touch and 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 maybe even communicate with each other um is this why uh, there is a, a um, well, uh, is it this why there is a, a big um, report of, 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 of magic being actually done in places of liminality, like, like for instance, you know, like cemeteries or, or churches or, or um, you know, uh, some people say, well, you shouldn't do things, uh, you know, in, in churches or you shouldn't do things in cemeteries. Others say, no, 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 absolutely not. You should do it because this is a place where two worlds touch. Um, sure. Yeah. And there is a lot of reports of that. Um, you know, uh, if you go through the traditional witchcraft practices, there's a whole lot of things that are done either in a church <laughs> or yep. church grounds or in the sure. cemetery, right? Yeah. Uh, um, I mean, there there are instances of um, uh, practices taking place um, mainly um, in in the cemeteries themselves, uh, rather than actually inside the churches. Um, in in the folk magical ways, um, people would wait outside in the uh, in the porch of the church on various nights of the year. So Mark's Eve, in particular, is one, um, and wait for the um, the shades of people who were supposed to die during that year um, would appear and either walk into or out of the church. Um, and if they walked into the church but didn't walk out, um, they would be amongst the dead that year. But but other uh, more strictly magical practices would, would take place in cemeteries. Um, 
people would um, commune with their ancestors. Um, rites were performed on, on top of, of graves. Um, people would um, call up spirits for um, aid in divination mm -hmm. or, or for various other practical purposes. Mm -hmm. So, but specifically yeah. because they were places of liminality, um, whether that was because the church was built on a previously sacred site or not, didn't really matter. The fact that it was hallowed ground was the point in, 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 in fact. Right, right. Um, how is the devil viewed in the um, East Anglia lore? And, and who exactly is he perceived to uh, be by the, by the practitioners that called upon him? Um, he is not seen as the, the biblical devil for the greater part um, of, uh, of thought. Um, the term the devil is more of a folkloric term. Um, he is seen as an opposer um, against societal norms, um, the champion of, of the oppressed, uh, the underdog in general, uh, the, the, the holder of uh, treasures, of secrets, particularly in, in places like uh, burial mounds or below the ground, um, and for treasure read, um, knowledge, ability, secrets, that sort of thing. Um, he was never to be completely trusted, but would generally tend to be a faithful ally um, in, in times of need if you served him faithfully. Right, and, and it was all—it was always a two-way thing. You know, you do something, and I will do something back for you. Old witches in East Anglia seemed to work mostly solitary, um, and although they would occasionally gather for a few a few occasions with other um, cutting folk also, but or other or other practitioners, mm. um, their practices, um, because of of the solitary nature of it, are very different from mm. one another. Right. Mm. Um, However, there is some practices that seem to coincide, um, and um, one of these is actually initiation. Can you talk a little bit more about these methods? And, right. Um, you already did, actually. You, <laughs> you talked about this uh, self-initiation, you know, it was something that actually happened. Sure, um, yeah. Um, the... the um... Well, there were various types, but the, the two main types in general I think you're referring to are, are the use of circles, um, whereby right. um, a circle would be made on the ground in some form of powder, chalk, ash, soot, dust, uh, maybe even grain, something like that, right. uh, inside of which um, the prospective witch would stand and call upon... Um, the being known as the devil or, or similar, um, and he would uh, appear and a pact of some sort would be made. Um, the other traditional form, may or main form, um, of, of self-initiation within East Anglian witchcraft would be the, um, the toad bone ritual, um, which is, is not unique to um, East Anglia, but it was used an awful lot uh, within this area and, and continues to be so. Very good. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Let's talk about snakes. 
um, okay. familiars. <laughs> familiars for the Northfolk witches were quite interesting. They work with um, snakes as as familiars, and and there was a there was a method of to enchant a grass snake, which is in your book. It's really really very interesting. Not the poison kind, of, um, but um, I wouldn't uh, advise practicing no. with the poison kind. No, <laughs> no. not to start ben, with anyone. Right, Finland uh, witches uh, from Cambridgeshire uh, used to um, tame vipers, which is quite you know brave, and mm. use their fangs in wine, which was then sold to um, pregnant unmarried girls. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a problem with these uh, familiars or hymns in in general. I mean, you know, we, we, you know, you talked about extensively about this. Um, they had to be passed to some other witch before the owner would die. Yes, right? um, it, it seemed to be that um, one, once these beings were um, in the possession of the witch, and they were usually given to the witch at their initiation. Um, by by the devil, um, or or they spontaneously appeared. Um, it was either impossible for the witch themselves to die um, until they were passed on to somebody else, um, or it would cause the um, them great pain um, if, if they were not disposed of in in some other manner. Right, which is interesting. It's very very interesting. Now you you go about talking about a lot more. That I'm that we're just talking about. It, it, the book is so rich in in information that it's not you know it's it's really amazing. Um, you um, talk about cure um, illnesses and and things, and you give a couple of examples. I'm going to give an example here just to tease our uh, listeners <laughs> on, on the book um, and how appropriate a, a cure for a cold, which is you know something that right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very appropriate, isn't Top, it? Topical, yeah, very topical. Absolutely. So, um, in the book, you give an example of one of these, and um, it says, "Add to wine or liquor, dried uh, and powdered lungs of three frogs, and recite three times after swallow the potion." Frogs in my belly devour what is bad. Frogs in my belly show the evil the way out, and that's you know. Uh, you know, just a tip to those who are suffering of cold right now. <laughs> could ex- could experiment with the poor three little frogs. Mm. Um, first, first obtain three frogs, yes. Right. <laughs> and the lung- and find the lungs, you know. And fi- yeah, quite. Uh, right. Find the lungs, because, um, well, yeah. Um, so um, you talk about uh, uh, defense by a bottle, which is very, very interesting also. Um, there's a whole lot of information in this book that it's actually practical. So you say um, there's a defense by boiling and bottle. It's the thing. Mm-hmm. And um, and then you, you say, you know, um, take a stone, uh, a, st- a stone bottle, make water, um, make water in it, fill it with your own toenails and fingernails, iron nails. Is this what we called normally a witch's bottle? Yeah, pretty pretty much. Um, they were used um, in in one of two ways generally, and that was um, either for um, protection uh, for the hearth and home, um, in which case you would um, fill it with the, the required ingredients and then incorporate it into the fabric of the house in some way. Um, very often um, under the hearth or up the chimney. Um, or under the threshold of the front door. 
Um, the other way in which it was um, generally used was if a person thought that they had been placed under some form of uh, malefic curse or spell, um, then they would use that to break um, said spell um, by um, placing certain items in the bottle again and then usually placing the bottle on the fire. Um, the bottle would then heat up and the ingredients inside and would cause the, um, the, the perpetrator of the spell great pain and great harm until they either took the spell off uh, the person or they appeared at the door and um, asked them to remove the bottle from the fire in exchange, again, for removing the curse. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> yes yes it is so useful um removing the, there's appendixes in this book which are not uh you know some appendixes are oh well but this one and just by the uh title it's really truly remarkable removing a witch's curse yeah and um there's this whole text can you tell us a little bit about the text not what it is in it but uh, you know, where where it comes from and uh, um, how is it found and all of that. Yeah, um, he published quite a few books actually on, on Cambridgeshire folklore, um, W.H. Barrett, which he gleaned from um, people in and around the Cambridgeshire Fen area, but also from uh, his grandmother, who was uh, quite an age when when he was writing. So her knowledge went back into the uh, the 1800s, the 19th century, and she was actually able to remember um, quite a few of the occurrences that had happened in her own village um, in her lifetime um, and surrounding villages, and also information that had been passed to her by older people than her as well. So this information goes back quite a way, um, much further than, than he would have been able to gather um, just talking to people at, at that time. So this, this particular appendix that you're talking about um, derives from his, his sources there and uh, is, is very, very detailed um, um, in its instructions. Any more books from you, Nigel, uh, that we're going to be expecting from Troy Books or anything else? Um, uh, nothing definite at the moment. Um, I, I have a few ideas in mind that I would like to put into practice, but they're, they're rather nebulous at the moment. So, um, what, watch this space basically. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> so let's wait a little bit. Um, yeah. well, thank you so much for being on the, on the black chair and my pleasure. Uh, it was a pleasure to interview you and to, uh, you know, to have you really, uh, sharing with us uh, pieces in, of wisdom. Very, very, very wonderful book. Thank you so much for writing it. And It's, uh, it, it, please, it's my pleasure. <laughs> please keep up with it, because we really want another one. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, as long as uh, Troy Books want me to, then I will do my best. I am sure they will. <laughs> okay.